0: Look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 is placed immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, and we're, and then we're asking Matthew again, if you are writing all of this to us, what is it now that you want to show us? Previously, with your Sermon on the Mount, uh, you recorded all the things that Jesus taught, that, that the values of the kingdom. Now you're going to talk about Jesus Christ. What is it about Jesus Christ that we need to learn and we need to know? from this particular passage. Now, this weekend, we're looking at Matthew chapter 8. Pastor Lee Chu uh, took up the second half of Matthew chapter 8 in the first and second services. This is because the second half of Matthew chapter 8 talks about the cost of following Jesus. Now, I am young. I do not qualify for golden eagles. But there are people who have journeyed with Christ long enough to know what it means to follow Jesus and Further ahead than I have been as to what the costs are, so do listen to Pastor Yishu's message um, when it goes up on the website um, to just hear and see what God is saying to us as far as what it means to follow Jesus Christ and the costs. But today we're going to look at the first half with this Matthew chapter eight verse one to seventeen. So we're going to read Matthew chapter eight verse one to seventeen. I want to encourage you if you have your hard copy Bible with you or if you have your phone with you. Um, If you have your phone, please turn it on to airplane mode. And then turn on your Bible app. And hopefully your Bible app doesn't rely on the internet. Um, And turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Right now, but if you don't have a phone or, 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 or your Bible with you, I have it on the screen. We can read this together. But I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it up and read it. Next thing I want to encourage you is this. Let's all stand as we read Scripture together. All right, let's all stand and honor the Word of God as it is read out in our midst, okay? So on the count of one to three, we're going to start from when he came down, right? So you don't have to read the titles. Uh, that's just for us to, to know the categories in which uh, Matthew is writing these stories. We're going to start from when he, came down, when he came down on the count of one, two, three. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Father, as Your Word has been read out, Lord, we now open our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, make that Word come alive. Make that Word speak to us and pierce our hearts just like Your Word always is, a double-edged sword. And so, Father, we are open. Lord, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Please be seated. I want to start off by saying a couple of things to kind of get facts straight a bit. Um, Like I said, the reason why Matthew writes um, the Gospel um, has a particular purpose. All the writers of the Gospels Mark, Luke, and John as well, have got particular reasons or purposes for which they write uh, the Gospels. Now, which also means this, the order in which the, the, the stories and the lessons are written does not necessarily, are not necessarily in chronological order, all right? So, if you, if you come up to me and go, hey, Wayan, Matthew chapter 8 verse 1 says, let me just go back there, Matthew chapter Chapter 8, verse 1 says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. You may be right. He, was, he had just finished a Sermon on the Mount, very powerful sermon. People were listening to him, and they were like, this man has authority. And then, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds continued to follow him. But between verse 1 and verse 2, And behold, a leper, there may not be a chronological order involved. Meaning to say that this particular healing of the leper could have taken place at any other time. But the reason why Matthew puts it in this section is what we're going to look at. What is Matthew trying to show us about Jesus? So all I'm saying is this. As we read this passage, as we read these passages, we ask ourselves not so much what took place one after the other, but saying, Matthew, what are you trying to show us about Jesus Christ? And what does that have to do? Or what does that mean? for my discipleship, all right? So just take note of that. Second one is this, and this is a bit more personal. Uh, Just by reading the title of my message, Here Comes the Healer, and the passage itself that we've just read, we're going to talk about Jesus, the Healer. But just yesterday, as I was preparing, one of our leaders in LifeGen, that's the campus students' ministry that I serve in, and, um, and we've got a lot of really powerful, strong leaders there. One of them came up to to us and shared with us personally um, that her mother was diagnosed last Friday, two days ago, uh, with a tumor, possibly cancerous. And she is going for an operation tomorrow, on Monday. And then she tells us that she, too, has just been diagnosed with a tumor. I can tell you, no matter how much time and energy, and and, and conviction I have developed as I'm preparing this message, even my faith took a dip. It was almost as if the enemy decided to take a swipe at me by by these incidences, dealing with people close to me, close to us as a ministry, and saying, okay, Wayan, you're going to talk about the healer, right? Where's your faith now? So before I begin, I want to bring my heart before God and ask that the truth of His Word and the authority of Scripture will come alive and pierce the unbelief in my own heart. Now, each of us come with different levels of of, of faith in Jesus Christ and belief that God can heal. But there are many of us who who may have this level, whatever it is, of unbelief in your heart. Perhaps maybe you've you've seen the power of God working so strong um, and, and you see a lot of healings. But but as the years go along, your testimony bank, your your reserves of testimonies of the power of God is running low. Every time you pray for people, don't things don't happen. And and, and when, when you wanna hear of powerful testimonies, you don't you don't have a lot of them as your own personal experiences. And there are times in those journeys when your faith also takes a dip. Today, I want to pray that the Word of God doesn't just pierce my unbelief, but that it deals with each and every one of our unbelief. Not by the testimonies, not by... And the testimonies are powerful, and and we praise God for that. But it won't just be by testimonies, but by the authority of scripture. That Scripture will renew our faith. The Word of God will become the foundation by which we say that Jesus heals, even though I do not see it today or immediately or right now. And our faith will be strengthened by the authority of Scripture. Shall we pray? Father, as we look to You, based on the authority of Scripture, we want to declare Your power, Your authority, and Your desire to heal. And may the authority of Scripture become the foundation for our faith. And on the foundation of that faith, Father, we go out, we pray, and we declare the healing of God over the life, over our lives, and even the lives of the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, so let's get into Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 to 17. This is how we're going to do it. Matthew gives us three stories. I call them three encounters because Jesus encounters people at every stage. And so the first encounter we're going to look at is an encounter with a leper. That's encounter number one. So let me get a couple of facts straight before we talk about this particular encounter. If you're having your hard copy Bible with you, right, an actual Bible that you can hug to bed, and go, the Lord is with me and I have the word of God in my on my chest. <laughs> now, if you have that with you, you probably look at your footnotes and realize that the word leprosy also says this: it can mean various skin diseases. Okay? And, and that's common, every time the word leprosy is used in scripture, there is often a footnote that says it actually can mean various skin diseases. All right, so that's the first thing I want you to take note of. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's the leprosy that we know of today. It could very well be boils, sores, eczema, skin diseases uh, that could come under this wide category known as leprosy. Second thing about leprosy. The Bible also tells us that one major way in which God judges sin is by inflicting leprosy. Now, just one way, all right? Um, and there are incidences in Scripture where people who have sinned against God suffer leprosy, all right? One example, Miriam. Miriam, who is Moses' sister, elder sister, and she was really wonderful because she she was really smart, by the way. When when Moses was drawn up out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, Miriam runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, "'I can get a caretaker for you,' and then brings the kid's own mother." All right, very smart. But at one point, as Moses was leading the whole of Israel out into the wilderness, Moses' authority as leader was challenged by his own sister. And because God was going to stamp Moses' authority, he did this by saying, if you're going to deny Moses' authority, he would inflict leprosy. And so Miriam suffered from leprosy. But because of Miriam's repentance, Moses prayed and Miriam was healed. I became an understanding that one way in which God shows um, judgment on sin is through leprosy. Another example is Gehazi, Elisha's servant, right? If you're familiar with the story of Gehazi, um, Elisha was actually called upon by Naaman, the commander of a Syrian army, and, and, by, and at that time, Israel and Syria are not good friends. Eh? Um, they're enemies, but because Naaman had a servant girl whom he had captured when he was raiding Israelite towns. Um, This girl said, there is a prophet in Israel who can heal you of your leprosy. Naaman was a leper. He had a skin disease. And long story short, Elisha was the person that Naaman met, and Elisha said, bathe in the river. He did that. He was freed of leprosy, totally cleansed. He came back to Elisha and said, I've got some gifts. I thank you for doing this for me. Now, Elisha, does not take those gifts. He rejects the offer. He says, look, God healed you. I'm not going to take any of this from you. But Gehazi, later on, decides to go up to Naaman, says that his master, Elisha, changed his mind and would take some of those things. Now, that was not true. Gehazi wanted those items for himself. And when Elisha found out, Gehazi was also inflicted with leprosy, not from Elisha, of course, from God. The last example is King Uzziah. King Uzziah was actually considered one of the better kings in Israel. What he did in Judah, sorry, and, and what he did was at, at, at almost like the peak of his, of his time as king, pride got in the way, and he came before the temple to burn incense. Now, what you must understand is this. If you're a king, you play the role of a king. If you're a priest, you play the role of a priest. You don't cross boundaries. But what King Uzziah did was he said, I'm king, I also want to play the role of a priest, goes into the temple, and decides that he wants to offer incense despite the warnings that he was receiving from the priests. And because he did that, he was also inflicted with leprosy till the day he died. Now, here's what's important to note. God doesn't do this all the time. But secondly, not all forms of leprosy or not all incidences of leprosy, is an infliction of God's judgment. But because it has happened, it became cultural stigma for the Jews at that time. Almost as if, like, any time somebody has a skin disease that they could consider as leprosy, God was judging them because they sinned. That's not true. But that was the stigma. That was what was held about them. So, if you were a leper there was almost automatically this understanding that something you did must have gone wrong. Something you did was wrong. Something you did was sinful. Now, the leprosy we know of today is called Hansen's disease. And I must say at the start, I feel very sorry for Dr. Hansen because he did not cause the disease. He found the cause of the disease. And that was in the late, it was in the mid-1800s um, when he found the cause of the disease Uh, And then began to, now I know the cause, I know how to treat it. And so, um, unlike using the word leprosy for various skin diseases, leprosy today is also known as Hansen's disease. Uh, I don't know why they named the disease after him, because he helped to cure people of it. Um, But the point I want to say is this. The cure for leprosy in its worst kind, the kind where your nerves um, lose sensation and then Eventually, parts of your body will fall off. Um, There was no known cure until the mid-1800s, and then it has developed today. Meaning, 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time, or 2,000, 3,000, 3,000 plus years ago, back in the wilderness, there was no known cure for Hansen's disease, or, or that kind of leprosy. Which means, if you have it, you will die. So, the way in which Israel treats a person with leprosy, can be found in Leviticus 13 and 14. Two long chapters, but let me just kind of summarize it for you. Because there was no known cure, lepers stay outside the camp. So how it looked like in, in Israel at the time in the wilderness is they didn't build houses, they all stayed in tents, right? And they would encamp, in the middle of the camp would be the tabernacle, but they would encamp around it. And outside of that camp is where the lepers stay. Second one is this, because there was no known cure, the word healed is not in a leper's vocabulary. In fact, the word would be cleansed or clean. That's how Israel treated it, as if leprosy was the direct result of sin. and So you would have to cleanse yourself rather than just get healed. Now, the one important thing that you will notice in Leviticus 13 verse 45 is this, If a leper was to move around and would come across people who themselves are not lepers, this is what he would have to do. He would have to wear torn clothes. So I look pretty dapper today. Thank you. Uh, But you will never get a chance to see a leper look like this. He would have to wear torn clothes, let his hair hang loose, cover his upper lip and do this. Unclean, 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 unclean. unclean. You, You literally tell the whole world, the community you are in at that time, you are unclean. Not just do people consider you unclean, you affirm the fact that you are unclean. Imagine the stigma, the cultural perspective on a person like that. But if a leper believes that he has been made clean, if he realizes, hey, the skin disease is gone, my hands are better now, my skin is better now, the priest will see him outside the camp. And if the priest finds out that he has really been healed of the leprous disease, and Leviticus 14 uses the the word healed just that moment, healed of the leprous disease, that means the leprosy is gone, the skin disease is gone, he goes through what is known as a cleansing ritual. And so the first part of Leviticus 14 tells us what that cleansing ritual looks like. But the idea is at the end of that ritual, the priest doesn't just declare him healed, he declares him cleansed. And after he's declared him cleansed, then the ex-leper gets to bring a gift, an offering to God through the priest. That means you go to the tabernacle, you bring an offering to God um, as a guilt offering And and, and thank you to God for the cleansing. So that's what it goes. If you think you're healed, get the priest to come. The priest checks you out and says, yes, you have been healed of the disease. You go through a cleansing ritual. After the cleansing ritual, you're considered as cleansed. Once you're considered as cleansed, you can bring your offering to God through the priest. Now that we've kind of understood a bit of that, we look at the encounter. So we have the leper who probably, obviously, didn't secretly walk up to Jesus. He didn't like quietly go from the back and then tap him on the shoulder and say, if you will, I want to be clean. Because he has to say, unclean, 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 unclean. So everybody around him knows there is a leper coming. Move out of the way. We obviously know from the way he's walking, he wants to go and see Jesus. So they move out of the way. Everybody knows he's there. And when he's there, he does this. And where's Pastor John? There you are. (laughs) One of the the things you said at the start of this service is is, is powerful, and I want to point that out just because I think God is running a firmness on this. He comes up to Jesus and kneels. For effect, I'm down on my knees. But he kneels before Jesus. And some of your translations will use the word worship. Why? The Greek word for kneel is also used in the context of worship. It is proskunio. And proscunio means you come before Jesus on your knees in worship. Despite his circumstances, despite the fact that he has been kicked out of society, told to stay away from the camp, and has to call himself unclean, 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 wherever he goes, he comes before Jesus recognizing this is no other Jew. Comes before Jesus, worships him, and then says these amazing words, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He worships God despite his circumstances. You know what makes the devil angry? The fact that you praise God. You know what makes the devil angrier? The fact that you praise God despite your circumstances. And, and, and I didn't make that up. Pastor John encouraged us to do that just now. Praise God, despite your circumstances. That was what the leper did. And then he said this, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I want to point out a couple of things about this phrase. Three words, will, can, and clean. The will comes from the word "thelo." Thelo is Greek and basically means this, to resolve, to determine, to purpose, to desire, to wish to delight in. Essentially, the leper is saying, if you delight in seeing me healed, if you purpose to see me healed, if you resolve and you determine to see me healed, if you want to see me healed, and then he says, you can. Can is the word dunamai. Dunamai comes from the same root word where we talk about in Acts 1-8, it says when you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power is dunamis. And, and what it essentially means is this. Dunami means that if you can, you are capable of, you are able, you have the power to heal. And so this leper comes to Jesus, proskuneos before him, and then says, Lord, if you delight in doing so, if you delight in making me clean, you can. Make me clean. You are able to make me clean. Notice his vocabulary. He doesn't say, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. He says, You can make me clean. Why is this important? Let me explain Jesus' reply and then you'll see. Jesus does, the first thing Jesus does is already countercultural, paradigm shifting, mind blowing. He touches him. Already, that leper is considered unclean. Declares himself unclean because he's supposed to. And in that time, you don't touch unclean people unless you also want to become unclean. But Jesus touches him. I don't know if you've been ever in a, you've ever been in a situation where. You you have been cast out, ostracized. And it would be wrong for anybody to speak to you, or talk to you, or touch you. But Jesus goes up to this leper and touches him. Imagine how that changes his mind about who this Jesus is. Changes the mind of the audience, the people around him, the crowd. He touched him. Can he do that? Would Jesus become unclean? Why did he touch him? First, he touched him. Second, he said, I will be clean. Now, if you're an English teacher, this is a good example on the power of punctuation. Because if you take out the punctuation, it just means I'll wash myself up. But because of the semicolon right in the middle, He states two different things and points it out for us to know. I will, I resolve to, I determine, I take pleasure in, I delight in. Therefore, be clean. I will be clean. And so instead of becoming unclean, when Jesus touched him, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the unclean man, became clean. You know why? Because Jesus then tells the ex-leper by that time, he says, go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I told you, if I think I'm healed, if I think my skin is getting better, I'm healed from the leprosy, I have to go through a cleansing ritual first before I'm declared Clean. And after that, I offered the gift. When Jesus declared him clean, he skipped the entire cleansing ritual and said, now, just go and offer your gift to the priest as a proof of my power to heal. What the Jewish law could not do to bring healing on that person, to bring cleansing on that person, Jesus did it. And because he was cleansed, all he had to do was bring the offering as a proof to the priests of the power of Jesus to heal. What's the lesson here? Jesus can. He has the power to heal. And Jesus wills it. Which means Jesus desires to heal. I'll give you a bit more about his desire, right? Because you're wondering, why are you going to go and touch the leper, right? In the Mark version of this uh, story, the parallel story, Mark uses the words, moved with pity, Jesus touched him. Now, the word pity is also read as, and I think it's probably more better read as, moved with compassion, Jesus touched him. And so his desire to heal, to clean this leper is because of his love for him. He sees him in a position where sin and, or sickness has torn him down, and out of compassion, deep inside his heart, he reaches out to him and says, I will be clean. Some of your versions would see Jesus was indignant, which is a very interesting translation uh, and totally, not totally wrong altogether. In fact, when I look at the word indignant, I look at it as, as angry. Jesus was angry, but he wasn't angry at the leper. He was angry at what sin and sickness can do to a person he loves. And so here is Jesus expressing his desire to heal because he loves them. He loves us. He desires that we be made whole and restored and renewed into full health and into full energy. And when he sees sickness tear us down, he either has compassion and well, He has compassion and He has indignance. He has anger against what sickness can do to our lives. Jesus desires to heal. So Jesus can, Jesus wills it. He has the desire to heal. Second encounter. An encounter with a Roman centurion. Now, the second encounter is not with a man who's sick. In fact, he's a perfectly healthy man a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile, so he's not a Jew, all right? And, and during that time as well, Jews have, have their boundaries of distance between Gentiles. I will not go into your house is one example. In fact, when Peter, as a Jew, went into Cornelius' house and, and then we re- the Acts records the first Gentile coming to know Jesus and saved uh, by the blood of Jesus, um, he took a lot of flack from his fellow Jews because of that. But because they knew, because the apostles knew that this was God's direction, they went through with it. They agreed that this was supposed to have been done. But in that time, Jews drew a boundary between their rela- in their relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now this Roman centurion, he is a military man. He is a man who, because of the Roman colonial army that he was a part of, forced their way into Israel. And he was positioned in Capernaum, possibly the military head in Capernaum at that time. Now, this was not a man who was cast out like the leper. In fact, this was a man who forced his way in and positioned himself in the governance of Capernaum. He has a servant, and the Bible tells us that this servant was lying paralyzed and suffering terribly. We don't know exactly what kind of paralysis it is. Could have been a stroke, could have been something else, an accident, maybe. But the point is this. He was lying, paralyzed, and suffering terribly. Now, if I'm a Roman centurion, at that stage, I could have two options. One, discard the paralyzed servant, get another servant, get things done. Or two, get the paralyzed servant out of his suffering, make sure he's healed, whole, get things done. And quite immediately, we realize that this centurion sincerely cares for his servant. And more than that, he willingly stripped himself of his pride and his dignity by going to a Jew, Jesus, and asking that his servant be healed. Perhaps at that point, the doctors couldn't do anything. Perhaps at that point, he was out of options. But the point is this, he went to Jesus. A Roman, a Gentile, going to a Jew for his servant's healing. Jesus' responds, I will come and heal him. I'm not sure how you read this, um, but sometimes you're reading it and, and it sounds like, I will come and heal him. Or I will come and heal him. Or maybe I will come over and heal him. And here's my proposition to you. I think the way in which Jesus said this was more like, shall I come and heal him? Now, you will know, of course, the word shall is not there, the question mark is not there. Uh, All you teachers of punctuation can tell me that. Now, the point is this. There is a parallel story to this encounter, Jesus' encounter with a Roman centurion, with Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman. And that is in Matthew as well. And what you will notice in those two conversations is that Jesus uses this con- as encounter with a Gentile as a lesson for the Jews. And so Jesus isn't necessarily saying, I will go now to your house and heal your servant, but more of prompting this Gentile centurion to continue this conversation so that he can teach the Jewish audience a lesson. And so he says... I will come and heal him, like it's a proposal. But the Roman centurion's reply immediately is this. He says this. Give me a second. He says this. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. He's saying three things. First of all, he's not worthy to host Jesus. And by saying he's not worthy to host Jesus, not just has he stripped himself of pride, of dignity, he's also saying this man is one of a kind. He's of higher standard. He's he's of a higher authority than I have. And even I, a Roman centurion, am not worthy for him to come under my roof. But then he also says this. Just like you, Jesus, I too am a man under authority. He says this in the context of him being under Caesar's authority. So when he says go, his soldiers don't go, if it's you, I'm not following. If it's Caesar, I'm following. Because when he says go, it's as if Caesar said go. If I say come, it's as if Caesar said come. And if I tell my servant to do this, it's as if Caesar said do this, therefore I do it. The great Roman emperor has said it through the centurion, therefore I do it. And so what he's saying is he considers Jesus to act under God's authority. And authority is the Greek word exousia, all right? And, and just like himself, under Caesar's authority. So essentially, Jesus, all you've got to do is say the word and that's it. Just say it. Just declare the healing because you, have, uh, because you act under authority and because you act under authority, you say the healing, and the healing will happen, I, you don't have to come to my house. You can do it on the spot. Now, if you're thinking that something about what this centurion is saying isn't quite right, like something is not really kind of gelling with you, Uh, you're probably right. Jesus is not under authority. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the healer. But forgive him. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He didn't read Isaiah. He didn't read the prophets. He, He didn't, you know, study all of this. He just understands that this man has authority, perhaps delegated authority by somebody higher up, just like me. And so he just has to declare it, and it happens. The Jews, on the other hand, had a hard time seeing it. If you look at Matthew 12, some of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would even say that Jesus' power to cast out demons was from Satan himself. Don't even talk about delegated authority. They even got the source of authority wrong. Matthew says Jesus marveled at the centurion's words. I'm not going to make a marvel joke. <laughs> All you Avengers. But I don't think he was surprised. I don't think he, like, oh, he said it. I think he was impressed. I think when the, when the centurion said what he did, what he said, he was like, yes, he said it. You know Why? Because he takes this opportunity then to teach his his Jewish audience a lesson. What is the lesson? Jesus can. We saw that previously. Jesus wills it, his desire. Jesus is. Not just does he have the power, not just does he want to, he has the authority to heal. He is the healer. This is reflected in the word exousia, which is what we use to to translate as authority, his, his exousia, his authority to heal. Jesus also makes a very important statement here. The people who would recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven would come not just from the bloodline. In fact, it will come from the east and the west. And what does that mean? What does that refer to? The Gentiles. But why? Because we are the same people of faith as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is not based on bloodline, but on the faith in Jesus Christ. Granted, the faith in Jesus' authority to heal is different from Jesus' authority to save for salvation. But what Jesus is pointing out, both in this story and as we go on into the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman in the chapters to come, is that Jesus will call both Jews and Gentiles and they will all recline at the table with God because of their faith. Not because we declare ourselves as within that bloodline, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus can. He has the power to. Jesus wills it. He desires to. Jesus is. He has the authority. He is the healer. Last encounter. Peter's mother in law and the others who are not specifically named. The last story spoke the most to me. Because by now, Matthew has shown us that Jesus has the power to heal, he desires to heal, he has authority to heal. But Matthew makes it more personal now. Who is the afflicted person? Peter's mother-in-law. And what is the affliction? Fever. Just a fever. If I say fever more times, it will sound like I'm singing a song. Some of you know, some of you don't. Never mind. I don't know about you, but here's something I find odd about myself. We talk often about the amazing power of God working healings and miracles, um, sometimes during our street evangelism outings or or, or during healing nights, healing miracle nights or cancer support ministry and and those powerful work of God. Um, But when I go home and I see my kids and I find out that they have fever, what do I do? What's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of treating it? Some of you are parents, you know this. Rule number one, drink more water. Then maybe, you know, if you've got some essential oils, rub the essential oil. Apparently, peppermint works. Um, or whatever it is, huh? Take Panadol syrup for kids, ma, right? Kids take Panadol syrup, go to sleep, cool her down with a wet cloth, drink more water, get the digital ear thermometer because apparently the reading is more accurate. Uh, turn on aircon, take a shower, drink more water. And that's the first thing that comes to my mind. And, and just so that I know that it's not just me, I asked my wife, lah. and she said the same thing. So okay, I, 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 I'm okay lah, as, a, as a father when your kid goes and has fever. I'm not saying any of these things are wrong, but I can also imagine that Peter, after coming home with Jesus from a powerful day of healings and miracles, didn't quite bother with his mother-in-law's uh, affliction and probably thought to himself, she will eventually get better, so let her rest up right? I'm sure he loved his mother-in-law, as we all do. Come on, we all do, right? All right, amen. But maybe I wouldn't really bother Jesus with this little illness that she's got. She's going to get better anyway. After all, it's not like leprosy or paralysis, you know, no known options, no known cure kind of situation. She'll get better, right? So just chill, you know, host my guests, entertain them. It was almost as if, Peter, coming back from uh, a great day of you know, healing, miracles, deliverance, and you know, a lot of demons cast out and all that, it's like, okay, guys, come to my house, lah, huh? I've got, my, I've got my, my crib here, you know, uh, come to my house, look, um, oh, what do you guys want to drink, all right, um, James, John, apple juice, all right, Jesus, what do you want, pomegranate juice, okay, fine. Um, just have a seat, and then somebody will ask him, you know, like, where's, where's your mother-in-law, right? Oh, she's in the room, she's just she's resting, she's, she's got a bit of a fever, you know, she, she'll be fine, right? don't, don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, I know usually they, they serve, because the, the women do that, the, they serve uh, the drinks, but it's okay, don't worry about it, I'll get you apple juice, I'll get you your pomegranate juice. He goes into the kitchen, and while he's preparing his stuff, now this is all me imagining, huh? the Bible doesn't say that. Huh? Um, Jesus, uh, this one the Bible says, Jesus saw her, he did two things huh Jesus saw her, touched her hand and the fever left. He didn't even say anything though. No. He saw her touched her hand and the fever left. Peter is in the kitchen. I don't know whether he saw anything was going on. He's preparing the apple juice, right? You know, one, two, three, twelve, right? So, twelve apple juice, right? One cup of pomegranate juice. And then suddenly, he hears his mother in law walk in and say, Why are you doing all these drinks? Let me go and do it. And he looks at her and goes, I thought you got fever. And then she says, Jesus saw me, touch my hand. I'm totally okay. Touch my head. Touch my head. No fever. So the Bible tells us, and this one is in the Bible, she got up and served them. She took the apple juice. Okay, that was not in the Bible. She took the pomegranate juice, also not in the Bible. But she served Jesus. Here's the lesson that I believe Matthew wants to bring to us. Not just does Jesus can. Not just does he desire to. Not just is he the healer. He actually cares. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of affliction. He cares. He sees you, he touches your hand, and you're whole. We come to the last verse Matthew 8, 17. And, as, and here's what I think was taking place as Matthew was documenting all of this down. He wrote about the leper. I said, wow, this is a really amazing story. He just touched him. He said, I will be clean, or oh, I better write that with a semicolon. Um, and, and just to make sure, you know, everybody gets what I'm saying. Um, and then he talks about the Roman centurion. And he said, wow, that's a, there's an interesting story there about what Jesus is telling the Jews about, and and, and and about faith, and sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He writes, He's writing all this down. Then he writes about his own friend's mother-in-law, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, <laughs> follow writes down and says, oh, there's a lot of deliverance and oppression and all that. He stops for a while and realizes, hey, I've read about this before. And then he ends with this phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It was almost like Matthew went into a reflection mode. After documenting all of this down. he went into a reflection mode and realize this is who Jesus is. Because it was said long ago by Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this. Because the reason why Jesus can heal, that Jesus longs to heal, that Jesus has the authority to heal, is predicated on an understanding of this statement. Matthew eight seventeen. Quotes Isaiah 53, verse 4. And Isaiah 53 is known as a messianic prophecy. That means it is a prophecy made years and years ago about the Messiah, about the anointed one. Today we know him as Jesus, but Isaiah 53 also gives us a particular slant at it. And it refers to this anointed one as my servant. And not just as he say, "My servant," if you look at the whole of Isaiah 53, in fact, actually starting from 52 verse 13, all the way to the end of 5'3, he talks about this servant suffering, a suffering servant." Today we know it refers to Jesus. And so let's look at Matthew 8:17, juxtaposed with Isaiah 53 verse four, and ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first one is this. Were Matthew and Isaiah referring to illnesses, diseases, griefs, and sorrows in the physical sense? Physical meaning actual, physical, natural sense. And my answer to that is yes, because the words illnesses, diseases, griefs, and sorrows all refer to physical infirmities, weaknesses, disease, sickness, calamity, and pain. What I've done is I've taken the Greek words as well as the Hebrew words and gave you a a, a definition of those words, other synonyms to describe those words, and all of them refer to physical illness, physical disease, physical pain. My next question then is this. What did Jesus do with it? What did Jesus do with all those physical pain? And both Matthew and Isaiah summarized, say that he took it, upon Himself. Here's how I know. I look at all the verbs. Again, all you English teachers, I think I passed. I looked at all the verbs. He took, He bore, He has borne, and He carried our sorrows. All of which, in its synonyms, refer to the fact that He took it upon Himself. He received it. He took it up. He carried it. He lifted it up. And the rest of Isaiah 53 tells us that He suffered it vicariously for us. He became our substitute. The pain you were supposed to bear, He bore. My next question then is this. Did Jesus really do for sickness what He did for sin? Isaiah 53 is more commonly understood as that of Jesus atoning for our sins, the wrong things we did. Meaning that He took all our sin on Himself, past, present, future, suffered the penalty for the sins, so that we do not need to suffer it. Isaiah 53 is clear about that also because He uses the words like transgression and iniquity to refer to sin. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he also says this. Similarly, he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But when I look at Matthew and how he quoted Isaiah 53, he wasn't quoting out of context. He was actually using similar words. We also know that sickness is related to the presence of sin in our world, whether directly or indirectly. No sin, no sickness, because sin exists in our world. Sickness exists. And when we look at the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man, that's a story that we will look at next weekend, and when we look at Matthew chapter 9, you will see the correlation or how, how sin and sickness come together and are connected to each other. So we can conclude that not only did Jesus take our sin upon Himself, He took the effect of that sin, the sickness, on Himself. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, He also rose with a new resurrection body, a body that knew no sickness. Not just do we have eternal life, we also have wholeness through what Jesus has done for us. That's why Jesus has the power and the authority to heal. What does this teach us of Jesus Christ? What does this teach us of Jesus Christ? When I look at Matthew eight seventeen and look at Isaiah 53, this is what I realized. First of all, we look at Jesus, who is all-powerful. After all, we said, you can heal. But He's also loving. And He's also loving. No buts. And He's also loving because He has the compassion, the love that draws Him to desire to heal. We also say that He is victorious. He has power over sickness. He succeeds. He wins. He is victorious over sickness. Isaiah 53 tells us that He is sacrificing. He has authority, the exousia, to heal. He paid it with suffering. He paid for it with suffering. Here we have king and we have servant juxtaposed together in one man simultaneously in the form of Jesus Christ. A man who says, I have the power, the authority, and the victory over sickness because I've paid for it. I've paid for it. I want to close with a final question. And this is the one that I think perhaps a lot of us go through and, and, and me too, right? And I, I struggle with this question myself. If Jesus can, Jesus desires, and Jesus is the authority to heal, why is it that people still suffer or don't get healed? I'd be honest with you. I don't know. But let me explain. There are many things about our life in this world that remain beyond our understanding, at least in our finite minds. This is one of them. Because the Bible tells us that there is healing through the atonement that Jesus made on the cross. But the Bible also tells us that there is a promise of a resurrection body when Christ comes again. There is a now and a not yet. And This is where we are, in the middle of this spectrum, subject to the sovereignty and the grace of God. But let me tell you this, on the authority of Scripture, on the authority of what Matthew has shown us of who Jesus is, that He can, He desires, and He is the authority to heal. Because of what Scripture says, I will not let my experiences define my interpretation of Scripture. I will not make my experiences where I pray for somebody and he doesn't get healed, then make me look at Scripture in a different way and say, actually, maybe he doesn't desire to heal. Maybe Jesus doesn't desire to heal. No, what I will do is learn to interpret my experiences in light of Scripture. Foundation. If this is who Jesus is and this is what He has done, then I will continue to pray and intercede for healing. Because just like the Roman centurion who declared the authority of Jesus to heal and said, all you need to do is say the word. I will continue to rely on the power and the authority and the love of God as I pray. If the healing comes, I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. It had nothing to do with me and Jesus doesn't owe me healing. And I'm deeply humbled and grateful that Jesus heals, and I will glorify Him. But if the healing doesn't come, or has yet to come, I still want to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, thank you Jesus, and give Him the glory. Here's why. I told you earlier that one of our LifeGen leaders Um, is not going through a medical condition, not just herself, her own mom is going through a medical condition. And I asked her today, I said, um, can I share this story? No names mentioned, just Life chain Leader, you know, don't worry about it. And she said, yes, go ahead. But you know what she also told me? And I didn't know about this until today. For the first time, I believe, in that family's history, in that family where only she and her brother are believers, in the midst of a family of about five or six, I remember, For the first time, they came together to pray. For the first time, an understanding of the power and the authority and the love of God began to grow in that family and reflected itself in them coming together to pray. If anything, God is already getting the glory. Jesus doesn't heal for healing's sake. He heals for His name's sake. And when a family comes together to pray, I truly believe God is going to do an amazing work in this family for His name's sake. I don't know about you. Some of you, you're looking at yourself and you're going, I'm okay, I'm all right. Family's all right. Okay, maybe my kid has a little bit of a fever or a sore throat, you know. Jesus cares. Alright? Yeah, yeah, give him a bit more water to drink. Yes, but declare the healing of God over his life. Some of you here, you may even be in situations where there are no options left for you. Or you know of someone in your mind that you really love and you're really close to that you want to stand for, stand in for. Who has no options left, and really needs the authority and the power, and the love of God for his life or her life, and the most of you will be somewhere in between. Today, on the authority of Scripture, we want to come to God and say, Lord, if you will, make me And I truly believe that Jesus has reflected his character to us and said, I will be clean.